This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was a cold, dark desert night in the late 1870s. Beneath the workmen's shovels, the ground crumbled away. The team of archaeologists, led by Hormuzd Rassam, had been digging in this spot for four days. They'd had to work covertly, sneaking onto other archaeologists' dig sites under cover of night in hopes of beating them to treasures. Now, the dim moonlight illuminated their discovery, a massive chamber buried beneath the ground. As Rassam and his team dropped down into the chamber and began exploring, they found themselves standing in the palace of the Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. Adorning the walls of the 2,400-year-old palace were ancient carvings depicting events and stories from a distant past, a past that seemed to tell of strange, mysterious creatures. These creatures were human in shape, but wore strange helmets with antennae. Above them, the night sky boasted a dozen planets rather than eight, and the creatures were often shown riding in pointed vessels that looked a lot like rocket ships. Digging deeper, Rassam's team found a library packed with stacks of clay tablets, each one marked with strange, unknown writing. Writing that told stories stories about how the human race was really created and what happened to the mysterious, otherworldly beings that created mankind. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. 
Today, we're discussing the Anunnaki, the gods of the ancient Sumerians, and, according to some, alien astronauts who helped turn primitive man into the modern human. Next week, we'll discover expert analysis of this theory to decide whether it holds any weight. Are humans really descended from aliens, or is it all just science fiction? At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. These days, theories about far advanced species visiting Earth in times past are a dime a dozen. But in 1976, only a few writers had broached the idea. Enter Zachariah Sitchin. Born in Azerbaijan in 1920 and raised in Palestine, Zachariah Sitchin spent his youth in the Middle East, surrounded by archaeological reminders that his homeland was the birthplace of human civilization. The previous century alone had been witness to the discovery of clay cuneiform tablets detailing the mythology and history of the region's earliest culture, Sumer, dating back to 4500 BCE. In 1953, Sitchin moved to New York City to work for a shipping company, but his fascination with ancient cultures never left him. In his free time, he began to vacation at ancient archaeological sites and taught himself to read cuneiform script. He drew largely from the library of Ashurbanipal, discovered a century earlier by Hormuzd Rassam. In 1976, he collected the research he'd done over the past 20 years, publishing the findings in a book called The Twelfth Planet. He decided to take the Sumerian myths at face value, that is, not as parables or metaphors, but as factual historical accounts of the creation of humankind. And his translations of the work found some new, strange details that suggested the gods of the Sumerian people, known as the Anunnaki, were actually alien astronauts from a distant planet. Before Sitchin, researchers and historians had a mostly agreed-upon view of the Sumerian mythology laid out in the tablets. The supreme god of the Sumerians was An, or Anu. It was he who fathered and commanded the other gods. Beneath him were his sons, Anki and Enlil, each of whom was assigned a portion of the earth to oversee. Enlil ruled over the land and weather and was often blamed for particularly harsh storms or droughts. Enki ruled over the ocean, a sort of proto-Poseidon, and these gods had their own offspring known as the Anunnaki, the sons of Anu. The family of gods in Sumerian mythology is similar to the ancient Greek pantheon, and the connections aren't incidental. In fact, there's a strong argument that stories from later belief systems draw significantly from the Sumerian myths. The Greek pantheon of 12 gods, for example, mirrors the Sumerian pantheon, also comprised of 12 gods. The oldest Sumerian dynasties, as listed in a tablet known as the King List, show reigns and lifespans numbering hundreds or even thousands of years. 
This is reminiscent of the lifespans of early man described in the Bible, where Methuselah, Adam, and Noah all lived to be over 900 years old. And then there's the flood myth, which recurs across the world in different religious traditions. The Sumerian version is contained within the epic of Gilgamesh and depicts the character of Utnapishtim. He was ordered by the god Enki to gather up the animals of earth onto a ship. The resemblance to the biblical story of Noah is again likely not coincidental. All of this information formed a compelling, consistent picture of Sumerian mythology as the forebear to many modern religious traditions. It's an interesting discovery, to be sure, but not necessarily a surprising one. The idea that traditions and beliefs passed from one culture to another wasn't new, as seen most obviously with the appropriation of the Greek gods into Roman religion. But now there was a single source older than any of the others that pointed, perhaps, to the grandfather of all these traditions. And while scholars at the time read the Sumerian myths as just that, myths, Zachariah Sitchin began to wonder if there was more significance to the enduring nature of these stories. Sitchin's key claim is founded on a relief known as Seal VA-243, recovered from the ruins of ancient Sumer. The seal depicts two figures standing before some kind of deity, denoted by the horns or flames that appear around its head. And above them, the relief shows the sun and the planets orbiting around it. But Sitchin noticed something odd about this detail. For one, the heliocentric theory that the Earth and other planets revolve around the sun wouldn't be first proposed until 270 BCE, several thousand years after the end of the Sumerian Empire. And second, the sun in the relief isn't orbited by eight planets as we know it is today. There are 12. That's three extra planets allegedly depicted by the ancient Sumerians. Writing in 1976, Sitchin assumed that one of these planets was Pluto, not yet downgraded to a dwarf planet. And he argued that another of the bodies shown in the carving was the moon, accounting for the tenth. The eleventh is the sun. The twelfth, he said, was another planet entirely, one called Nibiru, a name Sitchin drew directly from the Sumerian tablets. Nibiru is described as the crossroads of heaven and earth, and as a planet which is brilliant in the heavens. And across the tablets, the Sumerians and their successor cultures depicted the gods in regular contact with humans. Sometimes they simply described the concept in general terms, going through the proper rites and rituals to perform if Anu came to visit. Other times, they drew specific moments of interaction, as in a wooden carving in which a giant figure, presumably a god, hands a plow to a small human. This picture, Sitchin said, shows the Anunnaki teaching agriculture to ancient people. But if the Anunnaki aliens lived on the planet Nibiru, they'd have to have some advanced technology in order to reach Earth. Sitchin wondered if the carvings and tablets would make mention of their means of transportation. He found that they did exactly that, and that the reason scholars had missed it was due to an incredible error in mistranslation. Fundamental to his theory was one word, Shem. 
Prior to Sitchin, scholars had often translated the word as that by which one is remembered, or more conversationally, name. This could also be used to refer to places of worship, that is, the temples were the thing by which the gods were remembered. Sitchin said that this was a mistranslation. For Sitchin, Shem meant rocket. He argued that most of the uses of Shem throughout the ancient texts made more sense if the word were instead interpreted as a flying vehicle. When looking at carvings of the gods found at these excavation sites, it's easy to see Sitchin's point. The depictions of the Sumerian gods almost always show them encased in something that looks like a small, cramped vessel, like one of the lunar modules. Sometimes it even has a pointed top, like a modern-day rocket. Traditionally, these had been taken as representations of the gods in their temples or their Shem. But these rocket-like shapes are often bordered by 12 globes, suggesting something a little more celestial, especially when recalling the imagery of SEAL VA-243. This image recurs across the reliefs and carvings found at excavation sites in modern-day Iraq, and it even extends to the story of the Tower of Babel from the Old Testament, in which the people of Shinar, sometimes theorized to be the biblical name for Sumer, build a tower by which to reach the gods. At one point, Sumerian text deploys that term again, Shem. It says, let us make a Shem, lest we be scattered across the face of the earth. Perhaps Shem does mean name. This was a monument that would represent humanity's achievement. It would mark them, and it would be the thing by which they were remembered. The biblical Babel has traditionally been interpreted as a didactic tale, cautioning the dangers of human pride and ego. But Zachariah Sitchin didn't see it that way. If Shem meant rocket like he claimed, well, where better a place to build a rocket to the stars than at the top of a tall structure? A structure kind of like a launch pad. Based on all this material, the carvings of the Anunnaki giving mankind technology, the stories of visits from otherworldly beings, the references to a bright planet in the sky, Sitchin developed a theory. The Anunnaki, he said, had come down from their planet and affected, in fact, created, civilization and modern man. The prevalence of themes from Sumerian religion across almost all future religions was indicative of the fact that these stories were true. Everyone was drawing from the same source, actual real-life history. The Twelfth Planet singles out a scene from the book of Genesis, Jacob's Ladder. The story goes that in a vision from God one night, Jacob saw a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. On that ladder, Jacob watched the, quote, angels of God ascending and descending on it. Sitchin points out the strangeness of using a ladder. Would angels need such mechanical technology to ascend and descend from the heavens? Wouldn't it make more sense if that was how they went to and from their spaceship? However improbable it may seem, Sitchin was convinced. Armed with his novel reinterpretations of the Sumerian texts, 
Sitchin laid out his vision for the creation of humans, one that kept the basic contours of the accepted wisdom, but laid in his new understanding of the Anunnaki and how a civil war within the alien race led to the making of the modern world. Coming up, we'll learn about the wars between the gods as described by Sitchin. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. And now, back to our story. Researcher Zachariah Sitchin believed that the ancient Sumerian legends regarding celestial beings, the Anunnaki, were actually true stories of aliens coming to Earth and spurring the evolution of man. But to understand how the Anunnaki created humans, he needed to start by understanding where the Anunnaki came from. And so, he began to reevaluate the existing understanding of various mythologies. Though Sitchin insisted that he was taking the ancient texts at face value, he often gives grandiose or outright baffling explanations of how certain cosmic events came to pass. Sitchin begins by going back to the very creation of the planet before the Earth, and even before the Anunnaki, were the Nephilim. The Nephilim were actually a biblical concept, one that Sitchin claimed was an inarguable reference to the days when aliens walked the Earth. At the beginning of the biblical book of Genesis, the Nephilim were originally described as a race of giants, but Sitchin points out another, less discussed epithet used for them, the people of the Shem. As mentioned, Shem is a word that is traditionally interpreted to mean temple, but from Sitchin's point of view, it actually meant rocket. And he continues, claiming that the linguistic roots of Nephilim mean those who were cast down, that is, the aliens who came down to earth from the skies. It's with the Nephilim that Sitchin begins his account of how the world as we know it came to be. In the beginning, there was no earth. There was no moon. There was only Anu, the king of the Nephilim aliens. From Anu was born Enlil, and from Enlil was born Marduk. 
Anu and Lil, Marduk, and the others of these beings were all known as Nephilim. They were the ruling class of aliens, the original beings from which the future generations, the Anunnaki, all descended. The Nephilim were chilling in appearance, beings clad in strange helmets. In the early days, each of these gods took the form of a planet in the solar system. There were nine of these planet gods, plus the sun. Anu represented Uranus, and a goddess named Tiamat represented Earth. From the planet Neptune, represented by Anu's son Enlil, a new planet was created named Nibiru. It represented the god Marduk. Immediately, Marduk made a claim for himself, racing around the other planets at terrific speeds. But this didn't impress the other planet gods. It annoyed them. And it especially annoyed Tiamat, the Earth, who prepared to do battle with Marduk by creating Kingu, a satellite that would come to be known as the Moon. Facing this interplanetary conflict, Anu and Enlil took Marduk's side and developed a plan of attack. Armed with confidence and his ancestors' sympathies, Marduk charged at Tiamat, slamming into her. She split in half. One of Tiamat's pieces represented the Earth that humans would eventually inhabit. The other represented the asteroid belt. Kingu, the moon, remained in orbit, and Marduk was destined to forever return periodically to this battle place, passing the Earth in his own orbit. Sitchin tells how Anu and Lil and the other Nephilim began to make trips to the new Earth. These early visits served largely as scouting trips. They confirmed the presence of petroleum necessary in the production of rocket fuel, and they found habitable places in which to settle and begin expanding their empire. Most shockingly, Sitchin claims that there is evidence of these early visits to the Earth. In fact, he claims that there is proof of the very first journey recorded in an Assyrian tablet. The tablet depicts a planisphere, or star chart, and a fairly accurate one at that. It's a map through the stars, complete with early constellations. This is the kind of thing that would help a spacefaring alien race find its way around the galaxy. But scholars in the late 19th century were baffled by some of the symbols on the tablet. A lot of the symbols were simply repeated words, dozens of them, that didn't amount to any obvious larger meaning. Sitchin took one look at the tablet and determined it was both an interstellar map and a historical retelling, a record of how the Nephilim, and Enlil specifically, got to Earth. The retelling starts on the outermost edge of the star chart with an easy enough word, high. The craft is high above the planet, perhaps still traveling through outer space. As it reaches Earth, it must descend through the atmosphere, described on the chart as a series of vapor clouds. Navigating through the atmosphere, the aliens warn each other to set their instruments properly as they speed through the cloud layer, ensuring that they keep their landing spot properly targeted. Finally, the chart offers a familiar word, shem-shem, referring, as Sitchin believed, to rockets. As the alien craft nears the ground, it fires booster rockets in order to make its landing a soft one. 
Sealing the deal for Sitchin is an inscription on the tablet. It reads in his translation as the path of the god Enlil. With working theories as to who the aliens were and how they arrived on Earth, Sitchin began to wonder what drew them to the planet in the first place. After all, this was 450,000 years ago when the planet was devoid of intelligent life. Sitchin supposed that the Nephilim might have seen Earth's value in terms of mining opportunities, just as humans might one day venture out into the stars in hopes of finding some new element to harness, the Nephilim may have scanned Earth and seen its abundant gold and other heavy metals. Once they had determined to visit Earth, the aliens looked for the perfect spot in which to settle. At that time, the planet was nearing the end of an ice age, and Sitchin suggested that the Fertile Crescent, in modern-day Iraq, might have been an especially enticing landing spot for the aliens. Though that region is hot and arid today, it may have been quite temperate following the Ice Age. This is the land that would one day be called Sumeria, then Arcadia, then Assyria and Babylon. It was here that the Nephilim formed the Cradle of Civilization. Sitchin describes how the Nephilim built seven cities on Earth, each one assigned to an important member of their race. According to Sitchin, Enlil's brother Enki was assigned to manage the development of Earth, while Enlil and Anu supervised from their home planet and made occasional trips to visit. In the ancient city of Nippur, Enki began work on a massive construction project, a ziggurat, a pyramid-shaped temple for worshiping the gods. This is all detailed in the original tablets from which Sitchin derived his theories, but he added a new wrinkle to the construction of the ziggurat, which was originally believed simply to be a place of worship to the gods. If these so-called gods were really aliens, Sitchin thought, then wouldn't the ideal method of communicating with them be through the use of a radio antenna? With this technology, the seven newly formed cities across Mesopotamia could keep in communication with each other and with the home planet Nibiru by way of radio transmissions. Sitchin describes how the other six cities were arranged in a pattern around Nippur, with their design suggesting something of a landing path, an easy way for incoming spaceships to figure out where they were headed. The ziggurat is a frequent subject of ancient Sumerian stone carvings, often depicted with strange protuberances at the top or to the sides. Sitchin, of course, decided these had to be antenna. While previous scholars had read that these structures provided Sumerians with a connection to their gods, they hadn't taken the notion literally. Of course, the ancient glorious cities of the Nephilim don't exist today and the ruins excavated by teams of archaeologists were all linked to known human kings. If the Nephilim built cities the way Sitchin claims, they were destroyed long ago. And it's at this point in the narrative that the Anunnaki finally come into play, with the end of the reign of the Nephilim. Anu, Enki, Enlil, Marduk, these were all the ruling class of aliens according to Sitchin. The rank-and-file aliens, the workers, were known as the Anunnaki. And by Sitchin's account, they were single-handedly responsible for the arrival of mankind. 
Coming up, we'll explore Sitchin's theories as to the origin of mankind. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. And now, back to our story. Zacharias Sitchin believed that the ancient Nephilim of the Bible were actually conquering aliens. One of the key reasons for the Nephilim's interest in Earth was the presence of precious metals. In particular, they began mining for gold, the value of which is apparently intrinsic across planets. Writing at the onset of the computer age, 1976, Sitchin immediately drew parallels between the use of gold in contemporary electronics and the likely need for such materials in ancient antenna. The beings who constructed Enki's ziggurat were not the great leaders of whom the stories are told and the songs are sung. Just as great kings in human history have rarely been responsible for building their own abodes. The Nephilim used the Anunnaki, the worker class of their species, to mine, construct, and generally do the dirty jobs that the Nephilim themselves were above. Sitchin translates a Sumerian tablet as saying the following. The Anunnaki, gods of heaven and earth, are working. The axe and the carrying basket, with which they laid the foundation of the cities, in their hands they held. A different Babylonian verse reads, 300 in the heavens and Leel stationed as guard, and on earth 600 he made reside. To the Anunnaki of heaven and earth, he allotted their assignments. In ceramic depictions of the gods, the Nephilim are shown stationed above the mines, while lower-class Anunnaki toil beneath. Others show Enki with what Sitchin argues are Erlenmeyer flasks, demonstrating the scientific advancement of the Nephilim and their superiority to others of the time. It was when the Anunnaki were assigned to the mines that they decided they could take no more indignities. In 1969, scholars W.G. Lambert and A.R. Millard pieced together an ancient Akkadian poem from disparate, fragmented cuneiform tablets. The epic, called the Atrahasis, tells the story of the overthrow of the old gods by the Anunnaki. Their version doesn't define these Anunnaki as aliens, but Sitchin, naturally, took the text and filtered it through his new interpretation. The opening line reads, When the gods, like men, bore the work. The story lays out the establishment of seven cities, each project supervised by a single Anunnaki, with others working beneath him. 
Frustrated, tired, complaining, the working Anunnaki at one dig site saw an opportunity when the Nephilim and Leel came to visit. He urged his subordinates, let us confront the chief officer that he may relieve us from our work. Apparently, the plea was not accepted. Soon thereafter, the leader of the resistance proclaims, let us combine hostilities and battle. They set fire to their tools and surrounded Enlil. At this point, he called on his father, Anu, to help. Anu asked the Anunnaki what their grievances were. The Anunnaki detailed the exploitative work conditions they'd been forced to endure. Enlil was unmoved, declaring that the leader of the mutiny should be summarily executed. But then Anu stepped in. Anu, the father of all these gods, the distant leader of the Nephilim. He sided with the Anunnaki, and he offered them a deal, one that would forever change the course of history. Though Enlil had no interest in compromising with the dissatisfied Anunnaki, his father felt differently. Anu declared, their work was heavy, their distress much. Anki, Enlil's brother, agreed with Anu and offered his own solution to the problem, to create a new working class, a species designed to carry out the will of the Nephilim and the Anunnaki. They called this new species man. Other religions frequently compare humans to their gods physically. The Bible, of course, states that man was made in God's image. Sitchin takes the connection even further. Enki was tasked with designing the new creature who would toil in place of the Anunnaki. But when he was approached with the job, he made a shocking declaration. The creature whose name you uttered, it exists. Earth, Enki claimed, already had a worker. It was crude, unrefined. It was in need of some serious overhauls, but it existed. He was referring to prehistoric man, the Neanderthals of old. Using their advanced scientific techniques, Sitchin argues that the Nephilim combined their DNA with these ape-like humans to produce modern man. Ancient alien gene splicing technology allowed the Nephilim to precisely modulate the DNA of these hairy, clumsy, but not altogether unintelligent beings. Again, the timing of Zachariah Sitchin's writing, 1976, is significant here. This was the dawn of DNA research in which the first suggestions of real-life cloning were just beginning to surface. Genetic engineering was moving from science fiction to reality, with Sitchin specifically pointing to recent experiments infusing the DNA of separate species like mice and chickens. Given that they could traverse the solar system, he found it a reasonable assumption that the Nephilim had DNA modification technology that was at least equivalent to that of modern humans. Not that they had perfected the process. Tablets describing the creation of humans report missteps, with Anki making men who succumbed immediately to organ failure. Yet others had deficiencies such as infertility, and in one extreme case, an inability to stop urinating. 
of course, to Sitchin. This sounded exactly like mankind's own fumbling attempts at early gene splicing, further bolstering his theory that the Nephilim and Anunnaki were attempting exactly that. The aliens came. They worked. They fought. And finally, they made man. But given that the Anunnaki and Nephilim no longer walk among us, Sitchin had to explain what happened to them. Which is where that flood narrative, so pervasive across cultures, came in handy. Sitchin turns to the Bible's first book, Genesis, to answer these questions, supposing that the stories within must reflect some kernel of the tales that inspired them millennia earlier. Specifically, he turns to Genesis 6, which in the New International Version reads, When the humans began to increase in number, the sons of God saw that their daughters were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. This is the chief sin listed in the Bible as the reason for God flooding the earth. And if, as in Sumerian culture, one knows that the sons of God, or Anu, were the Anunnaki, the problem becomes obvious. The aliens were procreating with humans. The working class and ruling class were mixing, defiling the blood of the proud, superior Anunnaki with that of inferior humans. At least that's how the Nephilim saw things. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods convene a council and decide to send a flood to wipe out humanity. Enki can't handle the guilt of that decision, though, and he passes the truth along to Utnapishtim, the human ruler of a Sumerian city. As God does with Noah in Genesis, Enki orders Utnapishtim to build a boat and take with him members from all living species in order to preserve life on Earth. So the Nephilim and the Anunnaki left Earth, returning to Nibiru, convinced that their catastrophic flood would make the planet uninhabitable and render their minds useless. And the floodwaters came and wiped out civilization, the ziggurats of the Anunnaki, and the new species created by Enki. The one exception was the designated survivor, Utnapishtim. Upon seeing that some humans had somehow survived, the other Nephilim were furious with Enki. But he convinced them that it was, in fact, Utnapishtim who inferred the coming of the Flood through his own brilliance. And the Nephilim grudgingly allowed him to survive and multiply once again. But that wasn't the end of human Anunnaki interactions. According to Sitchin, Nibiru, the alien home planet, has an extremely long year. It takes about 3,600 Earth years for Nibiru to orbit the sun. This explains the periodic sudden jolts forward in human advancement. Like the aliens of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Anunnaki have periodically given humans a little nudge forward on the evolutionary timeline. The discovery of agriculture, the use of more advanced tools, the formation of large civilizations, each of these happened about 3,600 years apart, perhaps coinciding with the passing of the planet Nibiru. After all, with their extremely long lifespans, as detailed in the King List tablet, what's 3,600 years here or there? 
and by Sitchin's estimate, their next stop should be right around 2,900. Once again, the Nephilim and the Anunnaki will evaluate human progress. They'll have to decide, do they help push mankind to the next step in evolution? Or do they finish the job of destroying humanity once and for all? Sitchin's interpretation of the Sumerian creation myth is compelling. Big spaceships coming down to Earth from afar, extraterrestrial beings building a whole civilization on the planet only to wipe it out. And it's impressive how much he manages to align it with the myths and religions across the world. Not just tying in the Abrahamic religions, but Greek and Hindu traditions as well. The stone carvings depicting these beings, ostensibly the gods of these ancient cultures, are often eerily similar to human astronauts and spacecraft. And yet, Sitchin's account is rife with inconsistencies. His insistence on taking the stories literally immediately creates a problem as he turns the Nephilim simultaneously into literal planetary bodies, only to shortly thereafter have them land on Earth and traverse it on a normal scale. And by picking bits and pieces from so many different real-life narratives spanning millennia, he could have found support in some religion for just about any point he wanted to make about the Anunnaki. The only way to be sure of what Sitchin argues is to go to the source, to look at the tablets themselves, the material he claims to be drawing from, and to find out what they have to say about Earth's supposed former alien overlords. Next week on Extraterrestrial, we'll take a deeper look at the carvings and the stories of the ancient Sumerians and with the help of some expert Sumerian analysis, figure out whether these aliens were real or just the product of an act of imagination. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Extraterrestrial is written by Thomas Dolan Gabbett and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.